0: So when I went on clinicaltrials.gov this morning, uh, it turns out that there are uh, over 175 clinical trials now open using mRNA-based medicines that are recruiting patients. Another 54 clinical trials are waiting in the rings, ready to be opened. So there, this is, there is a coming uh, tsunami of mRNA medicines. Um, Last year, Moderna and AstraZeneca reported positive results from a clinical trial where patients who, during open-heart surgery, were dosed with messenger RNA injected directly into their heart muscles that told their heart muscles to grow new blood vessels in order to get around clogged arteries. In other clinical trials, we are repeatedly dosing uh, patients with inborn metabolic errors to treat their metabolic disease. In fact, one of those clinical trials that's currently recruiting patients is for von Gerke's disease. And for cancer patients, we're creating personalized cancer vaccines. These vaccines are meant to train their bodies, their immune systems to attack their cancers. These are truly personalized medicines, one vaccine for one person. Now, for personalized cancer vaccines to be the most effective, we need to get them made and back to the patient as quickly as possible. We aim for a turnaround time of 45 days. By January of 2020, we had already manufactured, quality-controlled and delivered to several dozen patients personalized cancer vaccines. So we had the know-how Um, and the capacity to manufacture vaccines quickly. Thus, when the sequence of the SARS-CoV-2 virus was posted to a public web server on January 10th, 2020, we got immediately to work. Within two days, we had agreed with our collaborators at NIH on exactly which form of the spike protein to put in our vaccine. Because we had done so so many times before, it then took our mRNA design team just one hour to design the mRNA that we immediately... that we immediately put onto our um, manufacturing equipment. We were then able to make that RNA, get it quality-controlled, uh, uh, fill, finished, and shipped off to NIH for the clinical trial in 45 days. Now, what I find, <laughs> what I find truly remarkable, is that that mRNA sequence that we that took us one hour to design, is the same mRNA sequence that went into your arms that went, ended up in Spikevax, our now fully approved vaccine. One hour to design a medicine that has saved countless lives. It still gives me goosebumps every time I talk about it.
1: Well, there you have it. The future of medicine from the chief scientific officer of Moderna. And I guess we should all be applauding. Or should we be asking a lot of questions welcome to the FLCCC weekly update i'm betsy ashton i'm the creative director of this alliance of medical professionals and their supporters i'm a former cbs news consumer correspondent and i had an investigative unit and whenever some company announced or pushed a big new product we ran it by independent experts, people who had no financial interest in the product or the company, and we wanted to find out what they thought. Was it as good as advertised? Did it have any risks as well as benefits? And might some of those risks be serious? And we aired those independent expert opinions along with, you know, what the marketers were saying about the product. Now, I ask you folks, in December 2020 and since, did we get that with the rollout of these mRNA vaccines? Or instead, did the independent experts who had something to say, get ignored, get censored to prevent you and me from hearing about potential risks? Well, you know the answer to that. Tonight, you are going to hear our own independent clinical experts, Drs. Marick and Pierre Corey, talk to two other independent experts, Michael Palmer, a medical doctor with extra training in molecular biology, and Brian Hooker, a bioengineer who earned a PhD in chemical engineering. Doctors Palmer and Hooker wrote an online book on mRNA vaccine toxicity. Hmm they see big problems with this new technology so without further ado let's hear the other side of this story from two people who know what they're talking about pierre paul bring in your guests and tell us tell us what we need to know
2: oh well i'll just start by saying (laughs) that that video which led off is is truly disturbing right this this woman Chief Scientific Officer for a pharmaceutical company is given a platform on TED, right, on, on TED Talks, and she is literally extolling the virtues and the potential uh, benefits of mRNA platform. And here we have two experts. So Brian Hooker of uh, Children's Health, Health Defense and Michael Palmer um, wrote a terrific book Um I have to admit, I've only started reading it, but I'm so impressed with what I've read. Paul's already read it. Um, it, It's phenomenal. And so what we're going to talk about tonight, we're going to have Michael and and Brian talk about is really what this means, right? This is an mRNA vaccine platform. They're going to roll this out for numerous viruses and numerous diseases. And let's just talk about the underlying... um, therapeutic of mRNA technology, and and it is truly disturbing. And so um, I I think that video, uh, we need a rebuttal. (laughs) And so uh, (laughs) I'm glad you guys are with us today. I think your book is one, and uh, we we need to educate people on what's
3: coming. So, Pierre, I just have one comment before we start, that this book is outstanding. It truly is an outstanding book that everyone should read. It's very readable. Even if you're not a physician, it's written brilliantly in a way that people can understand and I think everybody needs to read this book Um, and we will provide the link so that you can download and read the book it is a truly outstanding book that is should be compulsory reading no question so guys
2: uh who wants to start I know you guys have slides um Michael or Brian who's going to start Michael, why don't you go ahead? uh, Yeah, maybe
4: a few comments on the video. I mean, she mentioned proudly that it took them only one hour to convert the protein sequence into RNA. I think most of this one hour was spent on the coffee break because this was just simply a computer program run, which probably took all of two seconds to complete. Right, So (laughs) that's one thing. Um, Moderna has a track record of failed experiments, also in particular for metabolic diseases. They have tried to cure a disease in which the liver doesn't manage to get rid of excess bilirubin. So in that disease, that disease should actually be an ideal target for mRNA technology because you only have to aim at the liver. You only have to get that enzyme gene expressed in the liver and still they failed and that was probably mostly due to lipid toxicity because you have to give these lipid nanoparticles in very high doses and repeatedly in in, in intervals of two weeks or something like that and that simply was this toxicity was intolerable. Now in this metabolic disease that she was talking about, you would actually have to aim not just at the liver, but also at the brain, at the heart, all the organs which are affected by this disease. And that's going to be a big, big failure. This is just simply not going to work, right? They might succeed in improving somewhat the situation in the liver, but that's not going to cure the disease. That is not a viable long-term treatment. So that's one thing. Um. The greatest dangers I see, aside from this application of very high doses of um, cationic lipids in order to target the majority of all cells in certain organs, is the combination of the mRNA delivery technology with the application to vaccination against infectious agents. And I'm going to try to make that case in my presentation. So if it's okay by you, I'm going to start it now, go through my slides, and then we can perhaps briefly discuss that. Okay, so... Good, so... I'm going to try to make the case today that what we have seen, the evidence of adverse events, the very rich evidence of adverse events that we have seen with the COVID mRNA vaccines will in all likelihood be repeated with future mRNA vaccines against other microbes. And so here we go. Um, So just a brief reminder of how mRNA, um, mRNA vaccines are supposed to work. Right. They sneak in the mRNA cargo into our body cells. The body cells start expressing this mRNA. In the case of the COVID vaccines, that is the spike protein. Some molecules of the spike protein are taken to the cell surface. There, They can be recognized by antibodies. And then the activation of the so-called complement system, which is a cascade of plasma proteins, can cause cell damage by membrane permeabilization. A sample of the spike protein molecules will actually undergo fragmentation inside the cell. They will be taken also to the cell surface and exposed there in combination with a certain carrier molecule. And this combination of uh, spike protein fragment and carrier molecule is recognized by so-called cytotoxic T lymphocytes or T killer cells these will become uh, activated by this recognition event and will uh, also kill the cells by a variety of effector mechanisms okay so that is uh, the result will be that cells which take up the vaccines will produce the antigen but they will then be hammered by the immune system and killed off okay so People who advocate this um, vaccination strategy tend to uh, make the point that what's happening here is really just the same as also happens in virus infections or with live virus vaccines. Okay, and indeed the uh, immunological effector mechanisms which kick in And destroy cells that have taken up an mRNA vaccine particles. They also, I mean, they have evolved in order to fight viral infections. They are active in virus infections. After all, right, in virus infections, we also have some tissue destruction and inflammation, and occasionally we can also have some severe damage. But um, on the other hand, with live virus vaccines, we typically don't have as severe damage as we have seen with the COVID-mRNA vaccines. Now, why is that? There actually are a couple of differences that account for the greater severity of side effects um, that we see with mRNA vaccines. The first one is that live virus vaccines replicate inside host cells. What that means is that you can initially give a very small dose of the virus, of the vaccine virus, If the recipient already has immunity, then this immunity will suppress the multiplication of this virus at a very early stage. So only very few cells will actually be uh, infected and then uh, clobbered by the immune system. With mRNA vaccines, there is no uh, propagation. And so therefore you have to give a comparatively very large amount of uh, this genetic substance, the mRNA, And that will get into your cells, regardless of whether you already have immunity or not. And then what can happen is that strong expression of the antigen, in the case of the COVID vaccines, the spike proteins, will clash head on with already strong existing immunity. And this can then result in severe effects. Then another point, most viruses, including most vaccine viruses, don't infect the cells of the blood vessel walls. Some do, for example, yellow fever or dengue fever and so on, and those tend to cause severe disease, right? They tend to upset the clotting system and so on. And with mRNA vaccines, there is no built-in, no strong built-in cell type selectivity. So all cell types can be um, invaded by these vaccine particles, including those in the blood vessels, and therefore we do see blood vessel damage, we see cells in the blood vessels attacked by the immune system, and then this destruction sets off the blood clotting again, right, so this accounts for the many cases of uh, stroke and heart attack and so on that we have seen um, after application of mRNA vaccines. And then another difference, which may, the relevance of which may not be as obvious, a live virus vaccine, is a re- regular virus. So each virus particle contains copies of at least some of the viral proteins that the genome encodes. The mRNA vaccines, they only uh, contain, rather they are enclosed with a lipid shell, and there's nothing that is related in any way to the uh, spike protein, to the gene product. And we will see in a minute why that's important. Yeah, we see it already here. Okay, so here is a key difference between the goings-on in a virus infection and in mRNA vaccine application. If we are immunologically naive to a given virus, then this virus will be able, in the first round of infection, to enter our body cells. The cellular machinery will express the viral genes. The antigens will appear on the cell surface and antibodies will uh, be formed, okay? Now, if we have those antibodies present and we get infected again at a later time with the same virus, then these antibodies can uh, recognize the virus particles and can neutralize them. They can prevent most of the particles from entering our cells again. So the effect is the more immunity we have, the more antibodies we have against a given virus, right? the more effectively the uh, reinfecting virus particles will be prevented from entering our body cells, and therefore, these cells will not be exposed to the attack by the immune system. Now, with mRNA vaccines in the first round, things look rather similar. However, right, we have antibodies, and if we re-inject the same vaccine, these antibodies will not recognize these vaccine particles for the simple reason that those don't contain any protein antigen. Therefore, um, the particles, the vaccine particles injected with the uh, second round, they will enter the cells and they will then, these cells, by producing the antigen, will set off the already angry immune system and the damage will actually be that much worse. So, in a nutshell, with a viral infection, pre-existing immunity suppresses disease With a uh, mRNA vaccine, pre-existing immunity makes things worse, okay? So therefore, um, with with the COVID vaccination campaign, right, people with natural immunity were in many jurisdictions not granted any exemptions from vaccination. This was an actual crime because the effect was entirely predictable. And here is just one little bit of histopathology. I'm only going to show you this one slide just for illustration. I mentioned the blood vessels specifically. These are two cross sections from the uh, fundus, right from the treasure trove of Arne Burka, the German pathologist who unfortunately died recently. Here we see cross sections through two blood vessels with lymphocytes. These are these little blue round cells attacking these blood vessels. And in the uh, panel on the right hand side, the damage to the blood vessel has actually uh, resulted in the formation of a blood clot. I could show you tons of these pictures, but I won't. Okay, so to sum up, right, the inherent flaws of the mRNA vaccines are that a high particle load causes a clash with an intense immune response. This intense immune response can be induced by a previous vaccination, or also it can be pre-existing immunity because the person in question has already had a COVID infection. Then the antigen expression of the cells in the blood vessels causes destruction of blood vessels, as we just saw. And then the um Vaccine particles fly under the radar of antibody surveillance before entering cells, and therefore these cells will be exposed to attack by the immune system after each re-injection. Okay, now on to the question of what to expect uh, from future mRNA vaccines. Are the side effects which we have seen with the mRNA vaccines against COVID specific for COVID, or should we expect the same kind of outcome with future um, vaccines? And in this context, it's important to ask what are the possible mechanisms that are responsible for injury by mRNA vaccines? What I've discussed so far is simply the immune response to spike protein as a foreign antigen. The spike protein itself however is also a toxic protein. It has a variety of adverse effects on uh, blood clotting and blood pressure. It can promote inflammation. Lipid nanoparticles which enclose the mRNA by themselves also promote inflammation and they can cause DNA damage. particularly with the recently discovered DNA contamination, which is abundant in both Pfizer's and Moderna's vaccines. Um, We can expect gene mutations, right? This is also a viable uh, damage mechanism and can be responsible, might be responsible, for example, for increased cancer rates after vaccination. So um, actually, yes, so what should we expect? in case with each damage mechanism um, for the intensity of damage after the first and the second dose, respectively. I will first show here, though it's only one slide, I think Brian is going to elaborate on this. Um, With both the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine, it is clear that um, myocarditis is much more common after the second and after the first injection. Why is this important? Um, We can examine how other damage mechanisms should behave after the second and the first dose, respectively. Lipid toxicity does not involve any interaction with a specific immune system, so there should be no change from dose to dose. We should expect the about the same level of damage after every dose. Also note that we see quite similar Um, spectra of side effects with the mRNA vaccines and the adenovirus-based vaccines that were produced by Johnson & Johnson as well as um, AstraZeneca. But these adenovirus-based vaccines don't contain any lipids, so probably this is not the leading factor. Then direct spike protein toxicity could very well be responsible for rapid effects, particularly after the first dose. However, we should expect that antibodies against spike protein should inhibit the toxic activity of that protein, as for example, antibodies against toxin also do. So we should expect a reduced uh, severity or also the incidence of adverse events after the second dose, which is not observed. Genetic mutations, there should again be no change because they don't depend on the activity of the uh, immune system. Also, in most cases, clinical manifestations would likely occur only after months or years. And then um, the immune response to spike protein, um, we should expect, as is indeed observed, an increased um, incidence of adverse effects after the second dose. So therefore, Um, This seems to be the uh, dominant mechanism and it also fits the best with the um, predominant spectrum of histopathological observation. The important conclusion here is, right, that this mechanism is completely general. It depends only on the foreign nature of the antigen. Each future vaccine will encode its own specific, its own particular foreign antigen all that matters is that indeed this antigen is foreign, and that is a sufficient condition for this triggering of the immune system and the immune destruction of blood vessels and other organ-specific cells. So we can sum it up: right, mRNA vaccines are indeed a very bad idea. Thank you.
2: That was great, uh, Michael. The, you know, one of the one of the points you made is. Um, with the spike protein, you mentioned, obviously, that's going to be increased with the second dose. And then you made the comment that likely to be implicated in future mRNA vaccines. My question is, we know the spike protein in itself is toxic, as your slide showed. So can you explain why you're saying that would apply to all future mRNA? Are you talking about well, uh, COVID the... spike protein mRNA or, or, or no. the general platform?
4: No, the, uh, the, the, uh, the platform, not the, not COVID vaccines only, but the general platform, for example, RSV uh, tox, uh, vaccines and others. Um, my reasoning here is that firstly, what the pathologists see is indeed, Burkhardt called it lymphocyte amok. Mm.
2: Okay?
4: Wherever he saw spike protein expression, he saw a very strong lymphocyte infiltration in almost all cases. That was really very predominant. That really hints at an immune attack as the key mechanism. And then on top of that, uh, my reasoning is, I mean, we have vaccines, right? We use diphtheria toxoid, we use tetanus toxoid in order to immunize against those bacterial toxins. Antibodies that bind the protein molecule tend to inactivate it. I would expect the same to also occur with spike protein. So if spike protein Um, exercises direct toxicity that is most likely predominantly the case in people without a lot of pre-existing immunity and after the first injection. So I could very well imagine that that early events such as heart attacks that occur a few hours or days after the injection, particularly the first injection, that they might indeed be related to direct spike protein toxicity. But even if we take those off, if we simply limit the consideration to side effects, which would occur at a time after the second injection or sometime after the first injection, when antibodies against spike are already present, those are most likely driven predominantly by the immune attack. And this mechanism is general. The mechanism of immune attack is general and should occur also if the particular vaccine-encoded antigen itself is more benign, is less toxic than spike protein is.
2: So that's helpful. So you're saying even when the proteins that the other vaccines encode are not spike protein, even if they're more benign, the response will be similar. It and will, so it will the, be similar,
4: possibly. Possibly, I could imagine that the number of very early events in otherwise immunologically naive in uh, vaccinees. Uh, might be lower. But on the other hand, we see the greatest number, the highest incidence of uh, adverse events after repeated injection. And that, to me, points to a prominent pathogenic role of the immune attack, as opposed to direct toxic action of the expressed antigen.
2: Understood. Understood. Okay, so Brian, are you going to tell us about? Uh, have there been any problems with the COVID uh, vaccines? <laughs> As Michael kind of laid out the mechanisms, uh, is there any data to support what he said?
5: What could go wrong? You know, we're looking <laughs> at. at um, I, you know, before I got into this and I started to do epidemiology, I was a, a plant molecular biologist, and I I expressed foreign proteins in plants. And and so I made genetically modified plants, and and we use similar transfection technologies to make genetically modified plants as what we're doing with uh, Moderna and Pfizer's technology and making genetically modified people. And so you have to ask yourself, you know, what could go wrong? Uh, the the plants didn't like the foreign proteins, uh, Michael, that that we put into them, you know, using recombinant technology. And the human immune system does not like the foreign proteins that we're encoding in a very, very similar way. Obviously, the immune system of, of humans is much, much differ, different than the immune system of plants. But let's go ahead and go to the slides. Um, this is, uh, uh, of course, you know, I do apologize for my surroundings. I am not incarcerated. Um, I uh, recently... Uh, changed offices, and I have not been able to unpack my office yet, so hopefully that will happen soon. But uh, but anyhow, um, this is a survey of epidemiological studies, and I start out with Bell's palsy. And this is a study that was done by Sato in 2021. And Bell's palsy is uh, temporary to permanent facial paralysis. And uh, unfortunately, in this study, they did not have a no vaccine control And Bell's palsy is caused by uh, different vaccines. It's been associated with things like the influenza shot, especially the pandemic influenza shot. But you can see that the mRNA technology through the Pfizer BNT 161B2 or 162B2 and then the Moderna vaccine far eclipses the amount of bell's palsy in other in, in that is in every other vaccine or associated with every other vaccine. And in all of the results that I'm showing here, uh, in, I've broken've broken down these results and put them in bar graphs so they're nice and and, and large and pretty colors and easily understandable. Um, but all of these are statistically significant differences. And so when you look at all other vaccines, the Pfizer uh, 80%, 84% higher rate of Bell's palsy, and the Moderna 54% increase in Bell's palsy. Next slide, please. Okay. Uh, This is for Coronavac, which is a non mRNA vaccine. Uh, It shows that, uh, you know, this could be related to the spike protein. However, I would uh, uh, contend. That you know the the mRNA goes everywhere. It goes everywhere in the body. It's literally found everywhere. It does not stay in the upper arm for two weeks after injection. And then again, the Pfizer uh, vaccine seventy five percent rate, uh, per, uh, percent higher rate of Bell's palsy here in this study by um, let's see, this was by Wan et al. Out of um, out of Hong Kong. And uh, this was compared to an unvaccinated control. Next slide, please. Okay, and this is after the first dose of Pfizer. And interestingly enough, the increase for uh, females, especially uh, older females greater than 64 years of age, was more than double. And this was what we call a self-controlled study where um, the individuals were looked at prior to vaccination and after vaccination to see the incidence of Bell's palsy. And uh, the incidence of Bell's palsy obviously uh, went up for the Pfizer vaccine uh, to much, much higher rates. And and it especially affected females for some reason.
2: And Brian, can I just interject as a clinician, you know, uh, Bell's palsy. I mean, it's, it's disfiguring. I mean, people's faces look so abnormal. I mean, their quality of life, it, it's devastating. Right. And obviously, you know, like people like Justin Bieber and whatnot, I mean, that's Ramsey, Hump, which is a variation of Bell's palsy, but uh, I mean, this, this is not a benign condition. It, it's devastating.
5: No, it's completely debilitating. And on one side of the face, just, you know, completely droops. And, and these, these patients work hard to recover, you know, the function of, of that particular side of their face. So no, that, that does not go, uh, you know, unnoted or unnoticed. Uh, let's go to the next Bell's palsy slide. Uh, this was, uh, showed an uptick that I think goes back to Michael Palmer's argument regarding an increase after the second dose here. This is uh, for the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, if you look at, in general, the first and the second dose, the, the rates went up by 54%, but then after the second dose, they go up by 133% or, uh, or a relative risk of 2.33. So there's something that's going on that is synergistic. The more vaccines that you get, the more boosters that you get, the higher the incidence of Bell's palsy. And next slide, please. Okay, let's move on to cardiac adverse events, and this is a this is a VAERS study. Let's uh, W. Let, let me uh, double check that. Um, no, I'm sorry. This is uh, uh, what is it? Um, the WHO International Database Pharmacovigilance Database, and compared to the influenza vaccine. Uh, rates of hypertensive crisis went up 12.72%, and rates of superventri- ventricular tachycardia uh, went up by almost eight uh, eight times. Eight times, sorry, I said percent before, but that's eight times. This was a paper done uh, by Kim et al. in 2021. Uh, they, this paper came out of uh, Seoul, South Korea. And then moving on to myocarditis, uh, obviously, we've heard a lot of this, uh, so next slide, please. Um, after the second dose, again, there's a synergistic toxicity. The more vaccines that these ind- individuals are getting, the higher level of uh, uh, effects that they're seeing. Myocarditis, this is in populations in general. This is not limited to adolescent, I- I'm sorry, this is led, led to, uh, limited to adolescents, but it's not just males. It's males and females, and the rate of myocarditis jumps by thirty times after the second dose of the Pfizer. And we've and and, and I've seen this over and over again. This is a vax unvax study, so the um, so the control group was completely unvaccinated, and the levels of myocarditis are here are stark. And the rate of survival of myocarditis, you know, after uh, after five years, you know, these survival rates are. Um, are as, as low as, uh, uh, you know, 50% to 20%, so this is not, you know, we've we've got myocarditis now in, in the news as being the new normal, you know, oh, well, children get myocarditis all, to, all the time, uh, but this is a highly debilitating disorder, and, and, and we're seeing scarring from the heart, so our scarring in the heart tissue itself. Uh, next slide, please. Okay, here is specifically to males, uh, and this was after the second vaccine for Pfizer in the uh, yellow bar and Moderna in the red bar. Okay, Um, I'm not sure of the difference, why we're seeing a difference here between the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine, Uh, this was a statistically significant difference. But again, you know, isolated to males 16 to 24 years old, healthy, active males. Next slide, please. Okay. Uh, this shows that there was a huge uptick in the Moderna vaccine, especially after the second dose. It did not go away after the third dose as compared to the two unvaccinated. Let's see this particular slide. Uh, this is in males. Um, and this was done by Patone in the journal, uh, let's see, I might wanna make sure that I get this right, Um, in the journal Circulation in 2022. um, And again, a a 15-fold increase in risk of myocarditis in males uh, 13 years and older. Next slide, please. Okay, this is myocarditis within seven days of receiving the mRNA vaccine. Uh, these are both Pfizer and Moderna mRNA vaccines. And these were in, let's see, uh, I'm sorry, I'm reading, uh, uh, reading as I go along. Um, this was, like I said, within the seven day period. And um, this was very, very early on. This is a 2022 paper, but the data were actually uh, from the first two months of the rollout of the vaccine. And and that's really telling. This information, um, there were a lot of researchers, including the CDC, that sat on this information. CDC knew as early from their signals about the myocarditis signal as early as February 19th, uh, 2021, but they did not report anything and even did not report Um, uh, the existence of a signal until three months later. And the same thing that happened within those three months is that the entire population of the United States went from 8% vaccination compliance to a 50% vaccination compliance. So, you know, basically by withholding this information, then billions and billions of dollars went into Pfizer and Moderna's coffers and the vaccine uptick went or rate went, went skyrocketed over that three month time period. And they and they could have prevented this. They could have prevented this. They knew this. In fact, the DOD complex probably knew this as early as January 2021. Next slide, please. Okay, this is carditis. Um, uh, this is a little confusing because this slide shows carditis. Uh, this is this is a title of the figure or a title of the article. And then the figure was specifically to myocarditis and you see an increase in males only uh, as compared uh, to males and females for the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, Next slide, please. Uh, This is, um, again, study population. And then you look at males that are uh, healthy uh, adolescents between ages 16 to 19, the risk goes up by uh, almost ninefold. Uh, And again, this is specific to the Pfizer. Next slide, please. Uh, This shows for myocarditis and pericarditis uh, for the Moderna vaccine. And there were, in this case, I'm not sure why, um, but there were identical risks after the first vaccine and after the second dose of the vaccine. Uh, This is, let's see, this study came out of Kaiser Permanente, this was actually from CDC's vaccine safety data link. And it's odd that the CDC would make this admission. Uh, this paper did not come out until 2022. And uh, when the, I'm I'm sorry, I'm mis, misreading this. Um, this is, yeah, 2000, this paper came out in 2022 in PLUS Medicine. And, and I'm sorry, I said that it was CDC. That was actually an Italian paper. I'm, Trying to read ahead uh, on one screen and look at the figure on another screen. I do apologize for that. Next slide please. Okay and this is, let me double check that, this is the CDC study by Goddard et al in 2022 and you can see that there is a real strong difference between the first dose and the second dose so there's something going on synergistically and again we're we're transfecting people so they're producing foreign proteins so you have to raise you you know uh just sort of throw up your hands and say yeah why would we do this in the first place we're attacking our own cells okay and that attack of our own cells is it, it appears to increase the number of doses that you get and uh this shows shows that it yeah this happens for the first Pfizer, uh, and a and, uh, uh, synergistic increase for the second Pfizer, and then the same thing for the Moderna. Uh, next slide, please. Okay, then we move on to shingles. Um, there have been some studies that have suggested that mRNA vaccines cause innate immune suppression. And so when we've got the, the chickenpox virus in our body because we either have the chickenpox or we've been vaccinated to the chickenpox, or we had a subclinical case of the chickenpox, then you would expect that over the baseline period, this baseline period was generally prior to vaccination, then you would see an increase in shingles incidence of about five-fold. Next slide, please. Uh, Hearing loss. uh, This is interestingly uh, a staunch supporter of mRNA vaccination, uh, Dr. Greg Poland from the Mayo Clinic actually uh, experienced hearing loss and, uh, and tinnitus uh, after receiving an mRNA uh, COVID vaccine. And you can see that uh, there there is what would appear to be a slight increase compared to things like myocarditis, but again, this was uh, statistically significant. Let me see how large that cohort was uh, for that sensory motor hearing loss. Uh, yeah, this was a uh, paper out of uh, Israel, and uh, this is based on um, a longitudinal not longitudinal study of a large healthcare organization in Israel. So this was lots and lots of individuals in the particular cohort. Next slide, please. Okay, and then if we look at VARES data and just the difference between, uh, I'm sorry, this is utervigilance, not VAERS, but this is vigilance data, the amount of death, hospitalization, and then life-threatening re- reactions. And this is normalized to a per-dose basis, okay? So this isn't just the fact that we gave a lot of COVID vaccines over the last, you know, two and a half, three years. Um, this, is, this is normalized. So your chances of death uh, when you get a needle stick for COVID versus influenza, um, goes up 42 fold for hospitalization, 45 fold, and then life threatening reactions, 56 fold. So, again, you know, this is a bad idea whose time has not come. Next slide, please. Okay, and then uh, among elderly per, uh, persons who receive the vaccine, this is really part of the front line uh, those that receive the vaccines first. This actually is a study by Wong that came out in. Um, uh, 2023, and it compared historic rates of these uh, conditions um, uh, in comparison to the rates uh, in individuals who actually received the vaccine uh, 65 years and older. And so you see a 50% increase in embolism, uh, 42% increase in acute myocardial infarction, uh, ninety-one uh, percent increase in disseminated intravascular coagulation, and then immune thrombocytopenia. Next slide, and this is the last slide, by the way. Uh, and then serious adverse reactions uh, predominated, especially in the Pfizer vaccine. But we did see an uptick in uh, the mRNA vaccines as well, that was statistically significant. So, and that is the end of my slide deck. Thank you.
1: Wow. I'm back, doctors. I forgot to tell you that I come back with questions from the audience and there are some good ones uh, dealing directly with this. And, you know, we have a viewer who wants to know, can this damage from multiple mRNA vaccines be undone?
2: If you know. Oh, that might be a question for me. I can only speak to. Um, you know, COVID vaccine injury um, yeah. can it be undone? Huh? I will say that the patients that I see in my practice are are, are really they're decimated. The vast majority are disabled. Um, you know, the the syndrome that they develop is most uh, like chronic fatigue syndrome or what we call uh, my myalgic encephalitis. And we're able to help these patients. We mitigate their symptoms. We improve their functioning. But I have to freely admit that even my best successes, they don't approach their prior baseline. Um, We're we're able to help patients immeasurably. So to say, can we reverse this? Can we, um, uh, you know, yeah, I guess reverse the damage or remove the spike and the effects of the spike? Um, we're able to do a lot therapeutically, but it, it's very, it's a very difficult disease to treat. And it's, um, it's challenging, but, you know, we keep working on it. We find new therapeutics and uh, different things that work in different people, but it, it it's, it's rough. Um, you know,
3: one of the- yeah, things- can we ask Michael or Brian, what do they think? Is, is, is the damage reversible? Because it seems like you have this systemic inflammatory response- to multiple parts of the vaccine.
4: Well, I mean, there are so many different organ manifestations, right? I mean, if you have a hepatitis, it will probably heal better than if you have a myocarditis, which doesn't tend to heal so well, or encephalitis. I mean, it depends very much on where the damage is and how severe it is in the first place. I don't think there's a general answer.
3: And there's no Pfizer Moderna didn't come up with a specific anecdote that we know of
4: any day now I guess
3: <laughs> yeah yeah we're we're waiting for them to
2: come this solution you know one thing I want to just say real quick Betsy before we do other questions is you know Brian the the slides you presented that the most dramatic you know you presented a lot of slides comparing either the rates of these injuries and illnesses compared to unvaccinated and then you compared it to other vaccines and you know one of the, the themes and one of the, the message that you guys are bringing is the dangers of the mRNA platform. And for me, the most um, compelling data are the slides that you presented where you comp- you comparing mRNA vaccine technology to traditional vaccine technology. And some of your slides, it's 12x. 12x these complications i mean these things have nothing in comparison to traditional and let's leave traditional vaccine dangers you know as a separate topic but this mrna platform is is particularly toxic
5: absolutely and you know when you look at i, I need to provide a disclaimer for vares vares is um is wo- woefully underreported um, and you know, even the CDC abandons it, but the CDC will not re- release their own internal database, the vaccine safety data link, to look at this information. Although I believe one of the myocarditis studies was based on the vaccine safety data link. But but if you look at the the number and and the uh, intensity of the different VAERS reports that uh, were reported over, you know, mRNA technology, mRNA vaccines. It absolutely exploded. It, you know, it's eclipsed the, the number of reports has eclipsed the entire rest of the history of VARES, that 32-year history of VARES yep. um, uh, over and over again. And you look at things that are very, very concerning. I didn't talk about pregnancy and fertility parameters, <laughs> but when you look at that, when you look at the number of miscarriages uh, and stillbirths. And, you know, and you compare them to the historic records of bears over that 32-year history, there have been three times as many um, uh, spontaneous abortions uh, in the COVID-19 era for mRNA vaccines versus the rest of the history of bears There have been uh, about, uh, there have been more stillbirths than the rest of the area, history of bears And there have been about 90% increase in the re- reports of fertility problems or fertility disorders and so I really really wonder about that um again I do provide the disclaimer regarding VARES being uh, woefully underreported there are some individuals that say yeah there's going to be an uptick in reports of VAERS, uh, but I don't see the CDC publishing publicizing VARES anytime soon hey. Yes. Ben,
1: we have a question. I've got to get, we're running out of time, guys. I'd say, I'd say
3: before, before we get to questions, I just have one important question, that there's been a lot of promotion for the RSV mRNA vaccine, and I just wonder what Michael and Brian have to say, because I think, you know, there needs to be a some degree of caution.
4: Brian, do you want to take this? Uh, why
3: don't you go ahead
5: first, Michael, and then I'll jump in.
4: I can only say I would expect, for the reasons I stated, an outcome that is just as bad as with the COVID vaccines.
5: Yeah, I do know the clinical trial data is is really uh, very very alarming, uh, especially for the RSV vaccine given during pregnancy, and uh, you know, in a fifteen to twenty percent increase in uh, low birth weight babies, and uh, so that would be small for gestational age and also preterm babies. And so, you know, you have to wonder, these things take years and years and years to really understand what is going to happen uh, to the newborn. And, and, you know, yet, we're developing vaccines in an hour now. So, you know, Brian, and and
2: Michael, Brian, especially, you know, of all the slides you presented, you didn't present Data on deaths reported associated with these MRNA vaccines compared to traditional vaccines. I mean, the you know I, I've been writing and researching the excess mortality increases temporally associated with the with the launch of these. that that's a major one.
5: It is. It is a major you, you know, you look at the number of deaths and there have been um correction factors for vars. there have been correction factors. For uh, VigiSource uh, 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 and uter Vigilance in the UK and in the EU, and um, y- you know you're you're looking at these estimates. The lower lower end of the estimates, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the paper by Mark Skidmore um, yep. at uh, Michigan State University, yep. and his lower his lower estimate was 300,000 deaths associated with the COVID-19 shot. You know,
4: it's, it's, incredible. That was, that was for yeah. 2021 alone. Correct.
2: Correct. Yeah. No, and Steve Kirsch, he's done work with a team of uh, statisticians and analysts. He he's actually published data a year, year and a half ago, showing hundreds of thousands of deaths. Um, uh, I and he has a range because he used different statistical analyses and models, but the, the death impact is, is, is probably, uh, to say it's the most the most important is is an understatement, but um, yeah. Um,
1: folks, Arthur wants to know: says, is there a way, like a blood test, to measure one's spike protein and determine if you have spike protein toxicity?
2: How do you know? So there is no commercially available uh, test for the amount of spike protein in the body. What we do, you know, we, I think we're, we're going to rely on the work of Arnie Burkhart, where you can see in autopsies and in pathological specimens when they stain for spike, you can see visually the amount of spike that's disseminated and causing damage and inflammation in organs, but that's after you're dead. So for people who are alive, how do you measure the amount of spike? I don't want to go too far into this, but myself in my practice with my partner, we, this is hypothetical, this is not clear data, this is not definitive, but we've been using what's called a semi-quantitative spike antibody level, which we think is a proxy for spike, right? So the amount of antibodies that you're producing um, should correlate with the amount of spike in the body, we think. Um, And we we do see, see it correlate with symptoms and treatments. We see it go down Uh, with certain treatments that actually degrade spike. We see it go up after events, um, you know, such as having uh, COVID or another vaccine. Uh, But we don't really know how to to measure the amount of spike in the body. And I think it's highly variable amongst patients. I, I mean, these vaccines are very unpredictable. I think some people turn into spike factories. That's how I interpret Arnie Burkhardt's work, where he presents all of his autopsy data of people who have died after vaccination. And when he sees all of the spike protein, he stains for it in the tissues, it tells me that there's a subset of patients who seem to produce immense amount of spike that disseminate everywhere. Um, But that's not the case for everyone who's been vaccinated. It's, it's that subset who, who suffer these, you know, these terminal events. And so, um, The final answer I was going to say, we need so much well-directed research with good research questions, with good, um, you know, diagnostic methods to to find this out. Like, it would be, you know, if we could all determine that this was a disaster, it's caused immense amount of disability and death. And once we realize that, we stop the vaccine campaign, and then we start real research into saying, what are the impacts? You know, how can we help people who have uh, unfortunately been vaccinated throughout this, you know, the propaganda and and, and the public health campaigns? I don't see that research being done. I mean, as far as I know, and I'm sorry, sorry to be cynical, but vaccine injury and death doesn't exist. These things are safe and effective. And that's the general view of the medical system. And so we're we're really in a tough spot. And we're we're left with what Brian just presented, uh, epidemiologic data, which they're going to dismiss and distort, and the pathophysiologic data that Michael presented. And we're really in a a really tough time in medicine uh, on a global level, uh, having subjected the, global, the globe to a, a, a vaccination campaign with an untested technology, with all of these impacts, you know, pathophysiologically and epidemiologically. And it, all we have is questions, 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 and no one's helping us to answer them. Here's one. Here's a good question from one of our viewers, which deals with something that was in the video.
1: Remember, she was talking about cancer. Paul's going to be interested in this one because he's just really done this wonderful monograph on a book now coming out on on cancer care. But Bill Bill Keltner wants to know, he says, I think I understand why the MRNA technology will not work with these vaccines. But what about the cancer treatments, as mentioned in the opening video? Could there be anything good
5: there? Could it really work? Michael? Anybody? to take a shot at that? Want to take a shot? I I I I have a, a you know to me it's it's like you're you're preventing cancer with with a technology that would cause cancer. Uh, I and and maybe that is a little binary uh, thinking of me being the non medical professional on this panel right now. Um, but you know I remember. Doing all those plant transfection experiments and looking at things like gene juice, which is gene juice is is a proprietary product that we use to transfect. and And once we got a plant transformant or we got something that was genetically modified, you know, it was a it it was a, a really important event. But we're using the same technology essentially on human beings now. So, you know, and when you get insertional mutation, by either contaminating DNA or reverse-transcribed messenger RNA, then that is going to lead to an uptick in cancers. And you know, I think people like Ryan Cole are seeing that.
1: Well, let's see. We have uh, one one final question here, and then I have something for Paul and Pierre. The um, uh, JT wants to know how can people know whether the vaccines they get, like the ones for flu or pneumonia are mRNA vaccines or not?
5: Um,
2: uh, How do you know if they're mRNA or not?
1: Are they always advertising honestly about these?
2: Well, Thank I mean, the MR as far as I understand, the mRNA vaccines for the other viral illnesses, they're new and they should be presented as such. I mean, if you're going to have something injected into your body, you should be given the minimum. You should know a lot, right? Yeah, <laughs> you should be told what it is and what the the potential side effects are. And that brings us brings me back to that that you know the the famous blank sheet of the side effects, right? Uh, of the the Pfizer and the other vaccines. I mean. If you're given a blank sheet of side effects, you, you should be concerned. But no, I, I think the product that you're being injected, I would hope that whatever medical professional is offering you that, they give you at least a modicum of information about it. So it should be presented. I'm
4: going to briefly say, be before heart. you before you get yourself injected with any flu vaccine, mRNA, and not read the book Turtles All the Way Down, and maybe yes. you, afterwards you might not want any of these vaccines anymore, and the question might not arise. Good, good point. Thank you, Michael.
1: Paul and Pierre, um, so a lot of our viewers are really concerned about the new variant, because what's in the papers, what's all over TV now, the new variant is, oh, my goodness, what do we need to do now? Do And then, of course, there's going to be a booster or something.
3: So uh, Pierre can answer, but my answer would be to do what we're doing all along. Nothing really changes. You know, they, this is fear-mongering again. They're trying to scare you. This variant is, is infect, infectious, but not highly uh, dangerous or highly pathogenic. So it's just a common sense precautions that people should follow. Uh, so make sure you have a supply at home of a what if kit. Don't forget about your providone, iodine, nose spray and mouthwash. Make sure you take your vitamin D, Vitamin D is just so important, as we heard last week. Make sure you take vitamin D right now. Make sure you have zinc. And so just do what you can to improve your immune system. And at the first sign of infection, just leap on it. But don't be scared. Um, it's it's not highly, highly pathogenic. And uh, it's you'll get through it. Would you agree, Pierre?
2: I don't think I could add anything to what you said, Paul, in terms of how we approach and treat the disease. There's no cause for concern. There's just more COVID. I mean, it's another viral illness. It's not as deadly as it used to be. It's easily treatable. Our medicines still work. There's no changes. Everything Paul said is exactly correct. I'm going to get off of the medicine. I'm just going to say, I want people to understand in context, and I I would say anyone listening understands this already. This new fear campaign, right, with these threats of new mask mandates, and it's COVID 2.0, right? They're using, and I'm going to be very cynical here, the vaccine uptake has plummeted. I think the general population is very now wary of vaccines, whether they're vocal about it or not. Actions speak louder than words. The uptake of the boosters plummeted. They're tired of these vaccines. The vaccine sales have absolutely crashed. So what do they do? This, to me, is a PR campaign. You see the media injecting fear to everyone. Mask, you know, we're going to get hit with this new variant. They're calling the variants and da-da-da-da. But when you read the fine print, it's the same disease. It's not that severe. The medicines still work. It's it's endless what they're doing. But I I agree with Paul, just stick to the principles. We have good therapeutics. We have good um, guidance around how to uh, fortify your immune system. Like Paul said, with vitamin D, you're going to be just fine. Don't listen to all the hype. On that, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, doctors, all.
1: Thank you for coming on, uh, our two guest experts, because I'm not going to tell everybody how to get your book uh, so that everybody can read it and uh, give a few other announcements. But we are very grateful for a... That's a can you can you discussion. say the name of the book? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's right here. Look thank at the, you. Got a nice slide there. The mRNA to- Vaccine Toxicity Book. There it is on your slide. And, uh, you know, this is important. All of you at home, uh, you just uh, can find out what they have said. Our two doctors with other medical freedom fighters, you know, from around the world have written this. And um, it was put out by Doctors for COVID Ethics, D4CE. And you can get it now at the links on the screen or visit doctorsforcovidethics.org to learn much, much more. And we thank you. uh you know, Michael Palmer and Brian Hooker for being with us and for doing this important work. Okay. We talked about cancer briefly. We have another book to share with you. This one from, of course, our own Dr. Paul Merrick. His recent monograph, Cancer Care, is now available in paperback and a Kindle version will be available soon. You can find it on Amazon and please make sure to share it with friends and family members in your life who may need it at this time. Okay. As we know, the past three and a half years have opened many of our eyes to the deep flaws and great dangers of the current medical system. Here at FLCCC, we have been fighting as hard as we can, along with our guests tonight and so many others, not only for medical freedom, but calling for a new parallel medical system that focuses on prevention, true health, and well-being. We've been busy behind the scenes working on outlining our mission. We want to invite each and every one of you to join that movement and help us redefine medicine. Please head over to flccc.net forward slash redefine medicine and sign up to be the first to hear updates about this movement. We look forward to building a better future along with you. Now then, uh, in the meantime, don't panic at all the chatter on social media, as the doctors just said, and in the news about a new COVID variant. Instead, we want to share with you a wonderful new article by our own doctors, J.P. Salibi and Keith Berkowitz, who also happens to be my personal physician, that focuses on why we do not need to panic. Please use the link on the screen or visit our social media channels, website, or substack to find this calming and informative article. And join us right here next week for more on this emerging topic. Uh, Oh, meanwhile, we have a couple of exciting episodes that are full of good information you can access right now. First, Dr. Bean has a new episode of Long Story Short out that looks at the main symptoms of long COVID. And we have a brand new series called Whole Body Health with Dr. J.P. Salibi that focuses on integrative approaches to treating the patient. His first episode will be out next Monday, and it'll be all about the thyroid. And you know, that's going to be popular since so many of us are having thyroid issues. So please check it out. Both of these valuable educational series can be found on our website as well as our FLCCC Odyssey, and Rumble channels. With that, let's bring up some wonderful people. And in this case, it's our one wonderful super nurse. Where's Christina, who is a solo tonight. I guess everybody's on vacation. It's the end of uh, the summer. Christina Maros, our CRNA, who put together all of the nurses' groups and pages and everything else. How are you doing? And how was it tonight with questioning? Well, Zara helped a little bit, so we have to give her- <laughs> Good! Zara knows all. Zara's good, too. We we had um, 64 questions, and we answered 54, so we Ooh, That's good. Very, very good, and uh, considering it was a complicated topic, were you getting the questions on this topic, or just a lot of other general things that are helpful? We got questions on this topic, and also just- general questions on the new variant and on other things related to COVID, um, but the, the um, questions about mRNA technology are pretty well known in our organization, so those aren't that hard to answer. <laughs> very very well. Yes, indeed. Well, thank you so much for doing this. And thanks to Zara, too, for pitching in there. She is so knowledgeable. She's done work on, with Paul on all of the protocols. So my goodness, she practically has an MD degree at this point. Um, anyway, we last but not least, folks, you know, we want to thank you for everything that you do for being with us here every week or as many weeks as you can be here for your support and your generosity, which is just who knows no bounds for helping us redefine medicine. And we hope you have a wonderful rest of the week and we will see you next Wednesday. But first, you know, we want you to meet another one of our wonderful supporters who didn't hear about us right away and has an interesting story to tell from far away.